Good morning. I'm David Swinehart, uh, and I'm glad to be here with you again. And I've been uh, a little under the weather with COPD, so if I get to coughing or that's why I have my stool up here, I'm not, uh, I run out of oxygen when I walk around very fast. Um, I need to teach you, I've, as you can tell, I'm a little older than a lot of you, but uh, I have a lot of illustrations from the farm, and I'm finding that most people don't have a clue what I'm talking about. So in order to tell a story, I have to do a little animal husbandry first. Okay, a mule has a temper, and it has an attitude, and it, it does what it's called balk. And when they balk, they just won't go anyplace. Okay? Now, there's another thing about animals, and some of you who've been to state parks or out west know this, that if you want to keep an animal inside of something, if you dig a hole and put some pipes across it, you know those fancy little gates you just drive across with your car? Cows, cattle, any kind of hoofed animal is terrified of that. Okay? So, farmer's walking down the road, and he sees a sign that says, Mule for sale. And he needs a mule, and so he stops and talks to the farmer, and he says, what kind of a mule is this? Oh, it's a great mule. He says, does it balk? And he says, not normally. And he says, well, what do you do when it does balk? And he says, well, <clears throat> tell you what you do. You just go over and you whisper in its ear, and then it'll do what you tell it to do. So he bought the mule, walked down the road, came to a bridge. See the importance about the bridge? Mule balked. Guy whispers in his ear. Nothing happens. Whispers in his ear again. Nothing happens. Whispers in his ear again. Nothing happens. Walks back down to the guy he bought it from. And he says, you sold me a lemon. You said if I whisper in its ear, it'd obey me. And it's balked and it won't move. Eh. So the farmer goes with him and walks down to where the mule is. And just about the time they get to the mule, the farmer who previously owned it looked in the ditch and there was a big log. Picked up the log, went over and hit the mule upside the head with it, whispered in its ear, and went right across the bridge. And the new owner's just looking. He said, well, sometimes you've got to get its attention. Okay, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Pastor Ryan asked me to, to continue our series and to go in Acts chapter 9, and don't tell him I will, but I double-crossed him. I'm not preaching everything that he and I agreed on. Spirit led me in a different direction. This is the conversion of Saul. There's several very important themes in this chapter and I'm only going to address one of them. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any believers there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when, his, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Uh, and don't you love it? It's almost a paradox how you can say Lord and then say no. <laughs> I heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. There's a couple of things that are really crucial in this passage that I don't have time to address this morning. One is this whole idea that Paul is being sent to the Gentiles. And I thank uh, Pastor Ryan for being such a good teacher to you folks because as he's gone through this series, he's helped you to see that saving the Gentiles was always part of God's plan. This wasn't an afterthought. This was from the very beginning. The Jews were just the trained missionaries that he had selected to go as missionaries to the Gentiles, as you see as an example in, in the book of Jonah. So Saul is being appointed to do this. The other thing that's interesting that Pastor talked about last week, following Jesus isn't always easy. Sometimes it's really scary when God says, uh, I want you to go talk to this guy. Well, and then we think about all the things that Saul went through. But I'd like to go back and, and spend our time this morning looking at this character, Saul, and see what he has to teach us. If you have it, again, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. In verse 3. He's talking about his heritage. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. By birth, he was born a Jew, a full Jew. Okay, this is very important. He had all the blood lineage that he needed to be right with God. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a Jew by training. He was sent to Jerusalem to train with Gamaliel, one of the best rabbis of the time. And so he knew the Old Testament better than probably anybody else alive at that time. He knew the traditions of men. He knew all of that. And he was a Jew by practice. 
He was a Pharisee. He observed the law. He was the guy that got down when, did you ever see a Timothy seed? Back to the farm. You ever see a Timothy seed? They're really little. And in order not to break the law, they would get, they would count because they wanted to give a tenth. And they would, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Because they didn't want to break the law. By birth, by training, by practice, even to the point of super works by going out and persecuting these heretics called Christians. And so here is this wonderful example of a pious Jew, the most righteous Jew in all the world, probably. And how do you think he felt? When he woke up in the morning, what were the feelings that he experienced? At night, when he couldn't go to sleep, what were the feelings he felt? He was a miserable, guilt-ridden follower of God. Because he was a perfectionist. Okay, how many, you don't have to hold your hands, but how many of you are perfectionists? You just got to do it right, or you don't feel good. This sermon's for you. As a recovering perfectionist, this sermon's for me. Now, here's what happens with perfectionists like this. They believe if in some way they can perfectly keep the law, then they're going to inherit heaven and God's good favor. How do I know God loves me? How do I know God accepts me? How do I know all this? I know I'm on my way to bound to glory and serve with King David and all the rest of them because I have kept the law, every part of it. And then the little voice says inside, you are self-deceived. No man has ever kept the law. And you read Paul's accounts of his own life, and he'll tell you that. He, he never was able to, to, to lick covetousness. This measuring your worth in terms of your productivity and your accomplishment is what leads to this kind of uneasiness because you know it's never enough. Perfectionists are never satisfied. Perfectionists are critical of other people. They set impossible goals for themselves, so they are bound to fail. They tend to focus on what they didn't get done than what they did get done. They could do 16 things right and the 17th one do wrong, and what would they remember and judge themselves by? 17th one. And so underneath all perfectionists are people who are plagued by guilt, shame, and feeling of this external pressure to succeed even though they know they can't do it. And so Paul is plagued even as one of the best Jews, the best law keepers who ever was born by guilt and shame and doubt and self-loathing. And so God says, it's time to get this man's attention. Now you know my story. And so on the way to Damascus, he gets the two before upside the head. 
Now, here's the problem that Paul was having. It says in Deuteronomy 22, any man who is hung on a cross is cursed by God. That's important understanding. From way back in Deuteronomy, any man who is deserving of death and is hung on a tree is cursed by God and has to be cut down by sundown so the land is not defiled. That's how serious this is. And so a stumbling block to the Jews and to Paul was how could this person who's the Messiah, who's God's son, who's, how could he be cursed by God? And he couldn't reconcile that. And that's why he persecuted him, because he knew he really wasn't God's son. He didn't have anything to do with his son. The whole Christian gospel was a bunch of malarkey because he was cursed. Because he hung on a cross. Part of what happened in those days when he was there, not able to see and praying, is that God explained it to him. And later Paul writes this in Galatians Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Amen. That's a good amen. And all of a sudden, the scales came off of his theological eyes, and he realized that no amount of good works, no amount of trying to keep the law would ever make him right in God's sight. But Christ went to the cross and was cursed there by God. Why do you think Jesus didn't want to go to the cross? I mean, thousands of men had been crucified. It was nothing new. So why was Jesus so unwilling to go? Because he knew when he hung on that tree, he was going to be cursed by God and all the sins that you and I have ever committed and anybody has ever committed and ever will commit will be placed upon his shoulders. And he will be separated for the first time from his loving heavenly father. That's the agony. Now, again, my aside in order to keep faith with Pastor Ryan, notice that in this it talks about this is to come to the Gentiles. See, the Gentiles is all part of God's plan. Okay. What happened? When this occurred and Paul was born again, when he was redeemed, he realized that he was forgiven of all of his past sins and that Christ's righteousness was counted as righteousness for him. It's called justification. Okay, this is where some people get confused. We use these nice big words. Somebody said, you're not any good till you've been out of seminary 10 years, so you learn, you forget all the big words they taught you. Okay, I want you to think of it this way. 
Think of sin as money. Okay? Sin is money. And you are a spender. I mean, a wild, freeze-floating, I mean, you just are a spender. You've hacked somebody's account. You've got their money. I don't know how you got it, but you got billions and billions of dollars. And man, you're just spending it left and right. And you are now in, what's the D word? Debt. Okay. You and I sin like that. And we are in debt for our sin, and that debt has to be paid for. And what do we know from the scriptures? What's the good news of the gospel? Jesus came and died on the cross, and what did he do? He paid that debt. That billions of dollars that we could have never even begun to whittle away at, keeping the law or doing good works, he paid for. And so if we're billions of dollars in debt and Jesus comes and he pays it off, now what are we? And if you've heard me tell this before, don't answer. (laughs) What are we? If Jesus paid all of our debt off, what are we? And? And? Starts with B. Broke. See, this is where your theology is not quite clear. If he just came and paid your debt, where does that leave you? Broke. Now, let that sink in. Sorry, I'm, I have COPD really bad this week. Uh, Lord has uh, been helping me, and Satan's been trying to keep me from coming here this morning. Do you, you got it? So when you become a Christian and Jesus forgives your sins, you're still broke. You don't want to show up behind the Apostle Paul or some other saint and Jesus meets you and Peter meets you to the gate and he says, well, good to have you here. What you, you're broke? There is another very important theological word, and it's called justification. And it's kind of a legal transaction, but it's very crucial here. Because see what happens when we ask Jesus to forgive us, and he cleanses us and pays off all that debt, and we show up with our bank book broke. God puts all of Christ's righteousness in our account. You got that? This thing of, I'm sorry, because a lot of people do it and they haven't thought it clear through, but the idea that justification is just as if you've never sinned is only half of the story. You've got to get into your mind and understand for your standing in Christ that when God looks at you right now, he doesn't see you as the sinner that you are. He doesn't see all the crap that you pulled last week. He doesn't see any of that. What does he see? He sees his beloved son's righteousness. Boy, I ought to get an amen. Do you understand? This is why God's love is so constant. This is why God grades on the curve. 
Do you understand what that is? Professors tell me, grading on the curve. You give your best class this test, and they all get 50s. And you say, boy, I can't flunk all my good students. I'll kick me out of the school. So what do you do? You say, well, if you got a 50, that's an A. And if you got a 40, that's a B. It's called grading on the curve. What do you think God does? He grades all of us on the curve because Christ's righteousness is in our account. I used to have a, a great pastor friend. And he and I had some really good conversations. And I said, you got it made. He says, what do you mean? I says, your father was a preacher. Your grandpa was a free preacher. You told me about how your grandfather used to take you out and teach you Bible stories and do all stuff like that. You know, you've got it made in being a Christian. What about some of these people that go through these kind of homes in this place? God grades on the curve. He understands what you've been through and where you're coming from. Some of you are crawling out of some pretty deep holes. Does that mean God doesn't love you as much as one of the elders who stands up here and leads the service and prays or Pastor Ryan? No. Who are you now? I am precious in God's sight as precious as his son. And that, my friend, is the cure to perfectionism. Now, let's get the implications. Why did God create you in the first place? Well, according to Psalm 149.4, he planned you for his pleasure. Now, think about that. Because some of you spend a lot of time thinking God's not happy with you. God planned you for his pleasure. He made you in his image. And he made you to love you. Love is given freely. Now, I threw a curve to the audio man, uh, visual man rather. Do you have those pictures? Illustration time. Proud grandpa. Glad you broke the ice by being a grandpa up here. Whoop, not that one. Can we go back one or is it? Okay. Uh, that's my latest granddaughter, Dana. Top picture, four pounds, 13 ounces. Was premature. Next picture. That's her and her older brother, who's five, at, uh, in February. Now look at this. Look at this series of pictures. Look, look, just look at this. <laughs> Next. She's 10 months old. Next. Yep. Next. Next. With her brother again. Okay. That's it. Thank you. You can't begin to believe how much pleasure I take in those two kids. And my other four. I have four kids all together, but the other two also. But, you know. I created them. My wife and I hadn't had our son. We wouldn't have those kids. Do you think it's a problem for me to love them? Do you think it's a problem for me to love her? Do you think there's anything that she could ever do that would cause me to not love her? 
See, this is God's plan. Just like Dana, you're born into a family, and the family loves you. Babies are babies. And all of a sudden, they cry. And Dana discovers that when she cries, somebody shows up. And they tenderly take her up out of the, the bassinet or the bed or wherever she is, and they coo and they talk to her, and they take her over to the changing table, and they change her diaper and pat her little round bottom, and maybe a little ointment so she doesn't get a diaper rash, and, and then they take her and hold her in their arms and bounce her around while they get a bottle ready, and, and then they, they hold her and give them the bottle, and, and then she gets really sleepy, and you put her back in the bassinet or whatever, and they go to sleep. Now, there's three important decisions a child is making at this time. What is the world like? And so for Dana, the world's pretty nice. You're uncomfortable, yeah, but something good happens. Second one, what are others like? Well, others are there, and they care about me, and they take care of me, and they love me. And then the third one is, what do they think about themselves? And you can tell by that grin on her face. She thinks she's pretty hot. And that's the way it's supposed to be. If it's good and people take care of you and love you, you feel really good about yourself. But what if you're born into a family where you cry and nothing happens. And you cry some more, and nothing happens. Did you ever watch a little baby go into a rage and just tremble all over? Finally, somebody comes in, gruffly picks you up, throws you on a changing table, half cleans your diaper, sticks a cold bottle of milk in your mouth and puts you in the crib and disappears. Now, what do you think the world is like? Not a very nice place. What do you think others are like? And what do you decide about yourself? There must be something wrong with me. Because if I was okay, people would love me. See, that's how it goes wrong. God's plan was be born into a family and be loved by that family, be made aware of God's love and be made alive in Christ and receive this greatest of gift of his great love. And you would sense and feel that and it would overwhelm you and it would fill you and, and you would also have the love of your family and then the love of your church family. And man, you don't just survive, you begin to thrive. I mean, I'm a bit of a mystic, but still, when I came here this morning and my OCBD is acting up and I walked in back there and there's a worship team and some of the elders and I said, man, I'm having a tough time. Do you know what it meant to me to have all those people come over and lay hands on me? To feel the touch of another human beings affirming to me, David, God's love is real. So we thrive, and when we thrive in love, in God's love, we become like who? We become like Christ. We become like him. 
And then for those of us who are recovering perfectionists, there's hope. You know why? Because John says when we see him, we will be like him. And he's perfect. So one of these days, I'm going to get there. But God's run amok. His plan run amok is when families don't communicate love and children grow up thinking they're unlovable or they need to earn their love. And what happens is those people begin to look for love in all the wrong places. Now, some even get made alive in Christ, but because of how they've been conditioned and, how, and the decisions they've made about themselves, they can have a terrible problem opening up and sensing God's love. And you're the people I'm talking to this morning. And I'm one of those. Up here, I know God loves me. But it's hard for me to sense and feel that and get the warm fuzzies from it. I've got, I've struggled all of my Christian life to, to pry that door open. I'm a lot better than I used to be. But it's always been a struggle. And we try to survive on a little love of God and, and, and maybe do something like become a preacher where everybody thinks you're great and get some more. Uh, it's not a good thing to lie up here. You get in trouble if you do. And you get caught up in performance. You know? And some people really, you know, they, they really help it along. They say... Oh, you were a preacher? Yeah. And then I went to Guam for 10 years. Oh, you're a missionary. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad you're a missionary. You must... He's like, good grief, you know. It falls into that pattern of achievement and performance. God doesn't love me anymore. Doesn't love me any less. And some of us, we get so beat down, we're in what I call survival mode. And we know that if we don't do something, we're just going to collapse. And so what do you do? Well, the country in Western tunes, some have really good theology. Looking for love in all the wrong places. See... One of the struggles I've had as a pastor and as a therapist is trying to help people get to the bottom of it. It's like you're, you bring your car into a garage and the mechanic looks at it and he says, yeah, it's broken. Well, I knew that. But what can I do about it? So to tell somebody, you know what your problem is, you're a sinner. Well, thanks, I already knew that. Well, you need Jesus. Okay, now I got Jesus. I'm still the same. Dig down. Get in there. What's going on? At the bottom of it is people who don't feel God's love and sense God's love and know God's love will do most anything trying to fill up that hole inside of them. They'll take drugs. They'll be unfaithful to their spouses. They will do most anything when it gets bad enough. 
You, you understand why this is so crucial, this understanding of how much we are forgiven, how Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, and how much God loves us? Because when we lose track of that, we start to drift, and we start to sin. And it can be terrible big sins or just little sins, like being critical and gossiping and doing all those other things. And I... Emma, an example, okay, what do you observe? I'm a comfort eater. Now, my dad's genes didn't help me, but I am. When do I eat? When I'm upset, when I'm worried, when I'm distraught? What have I lost track of? How much God loves me, that I'm his precious child? Now, I want you, if you have a pen and paper, to take down six things. And then after you do that, because it's a good discipline, after this, I get done preaching, you're going to get handed a handout that has all of this on it. Okay? Okay. You gave an example of Paul. You taught the theology. You showed us the implications. Now we know what we need to do. Any help in doing it? Yep. First, with your mind. You've got to start with your mind. Don't go with your feelings. Start with your mind. Believe that God loves you with his great love. You must change your thinking. You cannot let it be influenced by your, your childhood upbringing and things like that or bad preaching. You know what the danger of preaching this is? You know what the danger is? Y'all go home and sit down and not do anything. Hey, if God loves me as much as he can ever love me, then why do anything? You know, let's go out and have a big party and I'll get drunk and do whatever because God, you know, got it in my account. I'm covered. And that's what scares preachers, that people are going to get out of line and do all kinds of wild things. And so we've got to put the oughts and the shoulds on them and give them the 10 dirty dozen and, or the 12 dirty dozen on all these things to do and not to do. And that's why Paul got sent to the Gentiles, because he refused to do that. Even he had to get after Peter, because Peter was doing it. He said, it's scary out here, but it's God's truth and we've got to preach it. So you get rid of these ideas that God accepts or pleases, is pleased by you because of your performance. Ephesians 4. So first you change your thinking. The second is bask in the emotional fullness of knowing how loved you are by God. Work at it. Paul in Romans 8 says, by the Spirit we say, Abba, Father. When you're in trouble, that's the words. Abba, which means my precious daddy. What do you think my grandkids say when they're in trouble? Wesley crawled in the refrigerator and closed the door. Gotta love him. I created him. So you hear this voice muffled. I need a little help here. 
Abba, Father. Can you get it? And I really feel bad for some of you who are, who've been uh, abused by father figures because it's so hard to make this transition. But my precious daddy, help. I need to know you love me. I need to feel it. I need encouraged. Okay, number three, censor your degrading self-talk and replace it with statements of God's love. Now, those of you that can't hear your self-talk, you need to become more self-aware, okay? Because you're saying stuff. Any of you struggling with depression or that, you have a terrible dialogue going on in your head of self-talk. What kind of crummy, crappy things do you... Can I say that from the pulpit? Do you call yourself? Sometimes I have to watch it because I'm more of a therapist than a preacher, and I say things that... Anyhow... Is probably one of the people who had two people who had the worst self-talk possible in the Bible. New Testament. What do you think Satan whispered in Paul's ear the first time he got up to preach the gospel? How do you think he berated him? The other one's Peter. First time, I mean, Peter, he really gave in. You know, <laughs> forget it. After what I've done, I'm going back to fishing. If those two men could overcome it through the power of God's Spirit, so can you. Paul says, forgetting what's behind, I press on. Pray daily for yourself. Pray Ephesians 3 and make it personal, okay? Now, the last time I made a, uh, and that's the problem not writing out sermons and preaching on the fly like I do, is that every time, every once in a while you say something not very clearly. I believe in this word, cover to cover. I believe in inerrancy, all the good stuff. It's there, right down to the tenses of the Greek. And so when I told you last time to cross a couple of English words out in your Bible, I was not committing heresy, okay? I really wasn't. Um, So it's important uh, sometimes to take a passage like this, and again, I'm not rewriting the scriptures or anything like that, but it's it's for a devotional idea, is um, in Ephesians, I changed it from you to me. I pray that out of the riches of God's glory, he may strengthen me with power through the Spirit in my inner being. Change the use to, my, to me, made it personal, so that Christ may dwell in my heart through faith. And I pray that I, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of his holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Pray that daily. Know that God will never bail on you. One of my favorite passages. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, some things are simple but aren't easy. It's kind of simple to talk about how important it is for us to appreciate and acknowledge and accept and experience your great love for us. It comforts us, it encourages us, it delivers us from guilt and shame and all those kind of things, and it leads us into a kind of love relationship with you where we serve not because we ought or should or we're trying to earn something, but the love that you have for us, we just return it, and it's free, and we just love doing it, and you bless us when we do it. Help each of us to recommit to letting you love us. If there's one here this morning who's never entered into that relationship with you, may this be the morning. And for those that have been really damaged by their past experiences and have a difficult time really appropriating your love, may you bless them among all and pour out your love in a very special way. And I pray, Father, that you would help us as a church family to be your hands and your voice and your tender touch to those people who are just barely hanging on, who are just barely surviving, that are so starved inside. And may we be a church that demonstrates your great love in very practical ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.